Welcome to Harbour. We are a progressive Christian faith community based in Carrickfergus, Northern Ireland. You can also find us at harbouringfaith.com. He also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable will we use for it? It's like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. So the idea that small things produce big results, right? Way above their actual size. With a mustard seed, you plant it so tiny, but then all of a sudden you've got all this space all this habitable environment for birds, for people, all this good stuff comes from something so tiny. And it's the same with yeast. And in fact, even if you, even if you put the tiniest bit in, whether you want it to or not, that loaf's going to rise to some extent. But in comparison to the amount of flour that you have in the yeast, is so small, but it has such an inordinately large uh, effect. Small things that have huge effects way beyond their size and their context. Now in this context, the reading, Jesus is saying, this is what happens with the kingdom of God. Once it infects you, once it gets under your skin just a bit, all of a sudden, all these good things will come. The same with yeast. The trouble is he also refers to the yeast of something else, because it's not just a small amount of goodness that can get into you and infect everything. A small amount of kind of the opposite spirit can get into you and uh, affect everything. So he has also in Matthew a similar conversation, talking to his disciples, right? Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Again, the same thing. They understood that he had not told them to beware of the yeast of bread, duh, right, actual bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Of what? The teaching. That teaching that came. And when you see Pharisees and Sadducees, don't think that mean group of guys, right? Read in behind that legalism or a sense of fundamentalist adherence to a law code. That's what they represent. And the smallest amounts of buying into that mindset, that kind of teaching, the same way buying into the teaching on the kingdom, it will also affect you. Right? Just a small amount. Small things affecting big ideas. And this is the constant battle between Jesus with his kind of freedom and liberation that he speaks about and the other narrative that's been going on since before Jesus comes on the scene that says, ah, but we need to hold the line somewhere. Ah, but there is, I mean, come on, we have to actually stand up for something. One of the phrases that you'll hear, you hear it coming from the moderator of the Presbyterian Church this week, whenever there's something a bit controversial and someone or some group of people have been somehow told off or excluded or, or whatever, those religious people who do that will almost invariably say this line, I'm just standing up, we're just standing up for biblical truth. You heard that before? Look, it's not us, it's the Bible. 
We want to be kind and loving, but somebody has got to stand for what the Bible says. Someone's got to stand up for biblical truth. I saw someone having the argument, debate with someone online, and that one was a bit more liberal and one was more conservative, and they both kind of said, look, let's just agree to disagree. And the more conservative guy said, yep, that's fine. But remember, you're not disagreeing with me, you're disagreeing with God. See you later, you know. And that's the thing. You say, well, it's not me that's saying it. It's, it's God. God says it. The Bible says it. And someone's got to stand up for that. And if you don't want to, that's fine. Well, I'm going to. And there's just two kinds of yeasts. You know, one is a really strong idea. Once that idea gets into your system, it's your job to stand up for the truth of Scripture. It's your job to uphold the line. All sorts of stuff will happen. So, I want to look at an example where these two ideas come together. One, the leaven of Jesus. His kind of more liberal, more open, uh, inclusive teachings, compassionate teachings, versus the Pharisees. And it, I don't think any example illustrates this better than the one with the adulterous woman that encounters Jesus by being brought to him by the Pharisees and Sadducees. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. Just be aware of where we are. For the sake of clarity, there is no holier site, no more sacred, pure, holy place to be than the temple in Jerusalem. Okay? This is the center of it. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So Jesus is teaching in the courtyard of the temple. The scribes and the Pharisees, because that's where they hang out, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before all of them. Just pause there. Making her stand before all of them. I don't know if you've um, seen any art or imagery about this encounter, but they almost invariably show the woman in a fetal position crouched down before Jesus, you know, like ashamed. But she wasn't even given that opportunity. They made her stand. You know, I'm sure she wanted to crawl into a ball. Being brought to the temple. Right? When something's gone wrong in your life, the last thing you want to do is have is be exposed at a holy place in front of these men and be told they've done this horrible thing. Stand there so everyone can look at you. Making her stand, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. What has happened here is the Pharisees see Jesus' leaven, his version, starting to gain traction. They come come in and start to cut across it with a concrete example. Hold on. It's all very well, you're teaching about compassion and forgiving people and all this stuff. But you know what? Here's an actual person who's been caught in the act. Okay? And what does the Bible say? We should stone her. Not us. We're not saying it. The law of Moses is saying it. Somebody's got to stand up for biblical truth here. Right? So Jesus, are you going to do that? Are you going to defend the scriptures or not? The scriptures, by the way, say that both should be stoned, the man and the woman involved, because it does take two to tango. But no sign of the man here. But why would there be? 
Because this is just an example, isn't it? This is about making an example of someone and of Jesus. And you know what? The woman is the property of somebody else anyway, since she's presumably married. She's a much easier, more vulnerable target to bring. It's much harder to drag a man and threaten him with death. Because that's someone's son. That's someone's inheritance. Right? We can't be messing with Let's just bring the woman. Less people are going to object to us following through with biblical truth against this already vulnerable person. So, Jesus, are you going to stand for the word of God? Never mind your teaching. Here we are right now. Whose side are you on? The Bibles or this new thing you're saying? Where's the line, Jesus? Right? Interestingly, Jesus is, seems distracted. He's bending down writing something in the sand. Much speculation uh, has been uh, said about what he's writing, we don't know, or drawing, the word can mean. He's frustrating them because they want this rabbi, this male rabbi, to turn and look at this sinful woman. Look at her. To shame her. To make their points. Jesus seems not interested. Busy drawing. When they kept on questioning him, come on Jesus, look at her, real woman here. Right? Come on, what are we going to do? That's all very fine, but what about her? Surely this is the point we draw the line. He straightened up and said to them, the famous line, right? The one we all love. Let anyone who's among you, who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. You want to uphold biblical truth? Go ahead. Right? Anybody here who's sinless, be the first. And once again, he bent down and went back to his artwork or whatever it is he's writing in the dust, in the sand. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders, the most righteous, go, well, this is dangerous territory. Walk away, one by one. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Now she's standing maybe a bit taller. Jesus straightened up for the second time. They managed to get his attention with their accusations. Now they're away. Finishes what he's doing. Stands up. Now I'll look at you. Now he addresses her. Woman, where are they? Where are these guys standing for biblical truth? What happened? Has no one, and pay attention to this word, condemned you? Nobody condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. The famous line, let he who has no sin throw the first stone. And they don't. They walk away. Except one person who remains with the woman, and that's Jesus. Can you think of anyone in that crowd who had no sin? Because there was someone who had no sin. There was someone who was without sin, wasn't there? That was Jesus. And so all those that had no right to condemn walked away. And the one person who had the right to condemn refused to do so. That better be Jesus. (laughs) There's a movie, movie, The Fighting Temptations. The guy says, that better be Jesus on the phone. And I just always wanted to do it. Um, (laughs) No condemnation here. But uh, this becomes a condemnation-free environment. Her and Jesus. 
Because those who have no right to condemn her are away with the tail between their legs. And the one that could condemn her, should he chosen to, refuses to do so. Look at this, right, in Romans 8. Think of that situation, all the condemnation that melts away. From those who would condemn, who have no right, and the one who is allowed to condemn, Paul says, you know what? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Brendan McCarthy likes to point out, the Greek there for no means no. <laughs> Literally no condemnation. And you might want to say, hold on a second. Ah, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yes, let's look at that. There is no condemnation. No condemnation. There's a condemnation-free environment in and around Jesus. That woman was found to be in Jesus. She was brought to him to be judged. But in being in Jesus, found a judgment-free environment. When it says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our instinct is to read, those who believe the right things won't be condemned by God. right? But notice it's not saying there's no condemnation towards those who are in Christ Jesus. right? No condemnation against those who are in Christ Jesus. It's no condemnation for them. If you are saying, I want to be in Christ Jesus and follow the way of Christ, well then, guess what? For you, condemnation is not something you're allowed to reach for anymore. That is removed. It's not an option. It's not for you. You don't get to pull out condemnation when you feel a bit self-righteous. It's not for you in Christ Jesus. And it's not found in and around Christ Jesus. You are ill-equipped to handle condemnation as someone who is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it carries on. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ, right, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Notice those three words, law, sin, death. What happens? Here comes this woman. She has what? Sinned. What does it say in the law? That we should kill her. Death. Law, sin, death. That's how it plays out. When you stand up for biblical truth, get all a bit self-righteous, and defend this kind of written code, this written word, you are using the law of sin and death. But Paul here is saying, and Jesus is demonstrating, no, not for you. Don't go there. In fact, Jesus makes this increasingly clear if we look at the next one. These are also well-known verses, but we need to see them in context. What does he say? Guys, do not judge. Right? But look at the next part. So that you may not be judged. We want to talk about, uh, and it's tempting to want to talk about the non-negotiables. Yes, it's fine to follow Jesus and be compassionate, but what are the non-negotiables? What are the no-go areas for Jesus? Right? And I'll stand here and wait all morning for anyone here to give me one example, just one, of a parable or a teaching where somebody is uh, condemned or otherwise judged for having sin in their life by Jesus. I'll wait. All day, because you won't find it. It's not there. The non-negotiables for Jesus aren't that sin or this sin. The non-negotiable for Jesus is this. Don't judge. Because if you do, if you go down that road, right, 
then you've got to take it all. If you want to start throwing stones, you're going to receive some. For with judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. So go easy on yourself by not judging. Take control of your own judgment. Be compassionate. Because that's the kind of judgment you'll get. In Galatians, Paul has set up and established this church in Galatia, this little town. And uh, the, the letter of Galatians is mainly about him writing back to this community who were Gentiles. So they had no law, right? They didn't have to um, come away from the law of Moses. They just kind of started afresh with a clean slate, you know? And Paul was able to teach them all the basics about uh, the life in Christ, the condemnation-free life. But what had happened is some of these guys, the leaven, right, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had come from Jerusalem because they heard about this church. And they came along, the Judaizers, they're called. And they said, that's great. You guys are all following Christ. Brilliant. you become Christians. But you know what else would make you especially spiritual and righteous and pure? You know what would make you really top-notch is if you got circumcised. As Moses says, circumcision is the mark of children of Abraham. You want to be children of Abraham, you should be circumcised, right? And guess what? These, without Paul's supervision, these Gentile believers, some of them go, yeah, seems a bit harsh, you know, but, uh, you know, if it's going to make me righteous, sure, I'll, I'll uh, that seems, seems legit. And they start having themselves circumcised. These Gentiles start taking on this Jewish practice because the leaven, right, this idea that actually there is a code and you need to start adhering to it, there are people who need to be judged, you know, has gotten in and under their skin. And so they start, and Paul is furious. He writes to them and says, Who has bewitched you? You were doing so well. What has happened? And he makes this point in Galatians 5 where he says, Don't you know? If you get yourselves circumcised, if you follow and begin to follow that one part of the law, you need to follow it all. And you know what? There's 600 odd other commandments. So if you start down that road, if you begin that, there's no coming back. And what's the famous thing that he says? A little what? Leaven. Leaven's the whole batch. Have you heard that before? That's where that comes from. That's Paul's warning. He knows it's the leaven. And just a drop of that yeast, just a drop, infects everything. We as people, even people of God, even those who want to follow Christ, we are addicted to our desire to judge other people. We want, I suppose, to make ourselves feel like we've done something a bit righteous, you know? We've kind of been a bit pure, we've held a line a bit, you know? We've stood for something like biblical truth. Except Jesus never told anyone to stand for biblical truth, did he? Not something he ever, ever says. Ever. Let that sink in. He doesn't ever tell anyone to do that. He tells us to love our neighbor and to love God. As, as we come to a close, the reason for it is crucial, absolutely crucial. It's because Christ's coming and his teaching is, as Jade pointed out this morning, for all of humanity to, humanity to realize 
that we are unconditionally loved, forgiven, embraced, accepted by God. That there's nothing we can do to be more loved or, or, or forgiven or whatever, or included by God. That's what he says over and over again. But the one thing that will rob us from that, the one thing that will take away our uh, capacity to experience and live in the fullness of the non-judgmental love that's coming from God towards us, to the point that Jesus would actually die on a cross without defending himself, right? So that's the extent. The one thing that will prevent that real sense of, I really am loved and forgiven and whole, is if we do that. The one thing that will prevent us feeling the release from our own sins is if we judge someone else for theirs. By all means, let's judge ourselves, reflect upon ourselves. Let's decide, you know what, I need to fix this bit of my life. Let us not say to somebody else, you must fix that. Because A, we could be wrong. We are not equipped for that job. We don't have the capacity to do it, as Jesus points out in that situation with the woman. The two ideas, locking horns. And even the one who does have the capacity, the one who is equipped to make that judgment, doesn't. Doesn't do it. Therefore, there is no condemnation. So let's stop reaching for it and trying to bring it back in. Let's stop trying to say, yes, yes, but, yes, but. Let us be found among those. May we be those people who really marinate and fall back and relax and sink into the actual forgiveness and inclusion that we have received from Christ. Let us not wreck it and spoil it by doing the thing, the one parable that Jesus tells. I don't know if you know this. The one parable that Jesus tells where someone does something so bad, they end up in hell. In Jesus' version of the parable, the torture chamber it's called. And the one thing that person does is they don't pass on the forgiveness they've received. That's it. There's no story about a guy who does a sin so bad, you know, whatever you want to think of it as adultery or whatever, blasphemy, not keeping the Sabbath, watching pornography, whatever the things you think are the major sins. There's no story about them being so bad they go to hell. But there is a story about a servant who owes someone so much, but then is unilaterally forgiven for no reason, not because someone else paid the debt, just the debt is forgiven, right, by the master. But then that same person refuses to forgive a much smaller debt that was owed to him. So he receives no condemnation from his master and goes on and condemns someone else. The master finds out and says, you wicked servant. You want to play by those rules? Let's do it. Back to the torture chamber until you pay everything you owe me. Don't we get it? Can't we live without this need and this desire to make someone pay or have a line somewhere or to have our ins and our outs? Can't we learn the lesson and just sink into Christ, receive our forgiveness, right? Deal with our own sins, yes, but resist the urge to exclude or otherwise write off, judge or condemn those we think are doing something else that we think is a sin. You don't need to defend biblical truth. What we need to do is follow Christ's example, which is a condemnation-free zone. And as we do that, as we lean more in to Christ, as we feel the warmth of real, genuine, judgment-free forgiveness, that is the most transformative thing we could ever experience. The one thing most likely 
to make us live lives of righteousness anyway. Let's stand for that. Let's stand for deciding to receive our forgiveness, to know that we're loved, but not to feel the need to make someone else feel some kind of exclusion or pain or judgment, just so that we can feel better about ourselves. There is no condemnation. It's not our job. And that's good news, actually. Really, really is, once we wrap our heads around it. Let's pray.